Okay, there we go. All right, so this morning, um, the message is going to be called Baby with the Sword. And our, our Bible verses are Luke 1, 26 through 38, uh, Genesis 3, 16, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, and then Matthew 10, 34 through 39. So I know you guys, like, wow, this guy likes to bounce around, but there's intention to the madness. Um, so just bear with me there. Um, just to start out, I just thank you, Lord, for, uh, for what you're doing. And I just thank you, Lord, for your word and your revelation. And I just ask you, Father, that we just be able to receive the sharp sword that you have for us in Jesus' mighty name. Um, I'm sure you guys are familiar with one of these. We have a pen knife. And I guess it was about a month or so ago I got real, real zealous and I'm working really quickly and, oh, I got it nice and sharp, right? And it's like, cut myself, right? Wasn't paying attention to what I was doing. I got familiar. I knew what this thing does, but I got complacent. I was like, oh, okay, it's really easy. I can just pop it open. I can just do my thing and I'm ready. And next thing you know, I got poked. And when we do that, there's a danger of us doing that with scripture because we've done this so many times. We've had how many Christmases under our belt? We've done how many Christmas services? We've, we've read these scriptures a thousand, oh, well, I just know it, I, I get it, I, I got it figured out. And then the next thing you know, we miss the fresh new things that God wants to show us. And so I, I just thank you, God, that we pray against familiarity and be able to approach the scriptures with fresh new eyes and to see um, what you have for us today. And I just thank you, Lord, for that. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. So to start us out here in Luke uh, 1, you know, very, uh, it's, a, it's a Christmas passage, right? It's, it's, we, we go over this one all the time during Christmas. I know it's probably one of the most used sections of Scripture for, for um, Christmas service. But it says, now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel went, was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at the statement and kept pondering what kind of a situation that she was in. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. And Mary said to the angel, uh, how can this be, since I'm a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age, 
And she who has been called barren is now in her sixth month of pregnancy. It says, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said this, she said, behold, bond slave of the Lord, may it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. I've read that scripture, I don't know how many times. And I think it just smacked me right in the face what was really going on. I was thinking about Mary and her culture and her problem that she had in the midst of this. She was in a situation to where if someone accused her of adultery, that she could be stoned to death. She could be stoned, she could be hurt, she could be outcast by her family, she could be destitute. There's a multitude of questions that would rise up in your mind as, as, a, as, a, as a woman in this situation. At least the other fact is, I'm sorry, but you're not a legal witness because you're a woman. And there isn't someone else around to attest to what you just heard. So I'm sorry, that's not going to count. You saying that God did this, not going to work. We needed a man to be on the job for that to happen. But she doesn't go through things in this way. She quickly jumps to just honoring what the Lord wants to do. And I find that very curious. And the Lord highlighted this scripture in Genesis 3.16. It's after the fall. And God's dealing out consequences for what they had done. They had eaten the fruit of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil, which God said not to do. And they were very sure that they shouldn't have done it. And then Adam is going to blame shift and say, well, you know, it was Eve's fault. And so God is, is dishing out the consequences. And this is what he says for Eve. Just this one little line I want to focus on. It says, to the woman, God said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. And in pain, you will bring forth children. Now, I'm pretty sure that that one was true. I'm not a woman. When you have a child, is it painful? I mean, the word on the street is... Just, just a little bit, Cheryl? Okay. So I'm pretty sure that's scripturally accurate. But this other part says, yet your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And I think the point of this is in that culture and time of, of where Mary is, that's very much at play, right? She's being ruled over. This is Her, her desire will be for her husband. And she's engaged. She's in this year of what, what they call it the year of preparation. She's legally married. In, in our culture, we would say it's legally married. She's just not living with Joseph. There's all these contingencies and plans, right? Her dad said, like, look, I want to see this, and these things have to happen. Before you guys go move out together, these things have to happen first. So they prepare together, and I guess it's kind of like a way of seeing that the kids are ready. They're prepared for do this. Um, Mary also would have uh, Joseph would have provided the money for like an insurance policy for her called Mora. And so that was part of this. But they were very much planning their life, right? And so she, in the midst of this situation, do you notice that Mary doesn't say, well, angel, let me consult Joseph first. Like, I mean, I need to honor my husband. His will would be most important, right? I mean, man, that's pretty bad on Mary's behalf to not ask Joseph what he thinks. No, God knew what she was going to choose. He, she chose God first. She said, nope, God comes first. Sorry, I don't even mention Joseph. I just didn't even say anything about Joseph. She just, 
Like, go straight to, yes, may the Lord do as, as your will be done. What an amazing place, that blind obedience, and knowing that she could be attacked or whatever, she's going to have to rely on God to provide, or she's going to be in real trouble. So further back through, um, we're going to use this other section, it's in Matthew, and it, it attests for some things with Mary, but it mostly attests for this thing with Joseph. And it says this, it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, and we just went through what that means, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, and Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not um, wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. So he, he was obviously concerned about her. He didn't want her to get hurt. He didn't want her to be shamed. So he was just kind of, kind of, you know. So his, his belief isn't that it's from the Holy Spirit. He thinks Mary really screwed up. I mean, that's got to be a really hard place to be in. And, you know, when you look at this story, you think it would have been helpful that maybe God went to Joseph first, said, hey, look, I'm playing on. God doesn't do that. So is God a homewrecker? Is that what God is? God is a homewrecker? I mean, this is very awkward, tense stuff. There's a specific reason and a purpose why God's doing it this way. It's like he's reversing this garden scene and getting people on track and focused to see him first. And then this situation is, is um, Joseph is pondering, what in the world am I going to do with Mary? This is what happens in verse 20. It says, But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And I would assert that God had his angels up there, and he was like, okay, go now. Now's the good time to do it. We got him where we want him. And the angel says to him in this dream, it says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So the first thing that happens is Joseph realizes, oh my goodness, like, this is like reality. This is like what she said was true. Like, wow, we're like, okay, we're on the same page. So he establishes that, but he does this other thing which is a little bit more subtle. And these other verses that we skip through, we talk about the lineage. Um, as part of this is the angel said, Joseph, son of David, is including all the ancestry that, Jay's, that Joseph has with him. And brings him into this story of Jesus. So in, in a manner, in a way, it's as though the angel of the Lord is saying this. He's saying, Joseph, son of David, your ancestry, you know, Abraham, who tried to help him, Esau, who gave him away, Jacob, who tried to steal him, and he, and he wrestled with him, Judah, who withheld him, Moses, um, Boaz, who honored him, David, who went to war and cried about him, Solomon, who built a temple for him, Josiah, who repaired his temple and revered him. And you, Joseph, are trying to dismiss him. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. So there's all that ancestry that comes down. It's important that we bring that along with the passage. And then continuing here in verse 21, it says this, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, 
All this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, which was Isaiah. And behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. And that comes from Isaiah 7.14. So we have all this history and prophecy. This isn't God just doing his own thing in the sense of something brand new. This is foretold and this is moving from the Old Testament straight into the New Testament. Um, Satan couldn't stop this if he wanted. This is a freight train. I bet you someone is shaking in his boots at this point. And in verse 24, it says, Joseph awoke from his sleep, what a dream, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and he took Mary as his wife, but he kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. So this isn't Mary Christ and Joseph Christ had Jesus Christ. This isn't really that Mary and Joseph had Jesus This is Jesus had Mary and Joseph. This is completely different. There's something much more broad at play here, and it's this thing called sanctification, which means that we get on the same page with God, and God sets us apart for him. It's God first. We worship God, and then others include underneath that blanket. And that's what happened to Joseph and Mary's marriage. They're like, oh, they're so in the middle of this. They couldn't get out of it if they tried. And that was not an easy process. And that's why I said, um, you know, baby Jesus is is coming here and we're like, oh, wow, what a sweet little baby Jesus. It's like, he's carrying a sword, man. The very part of the beginning of this whole story is turmoil, struggle, and and it's sanctification right from the beginning. I wanted to pull, pull apart this I'm, I'm a Bible nerd, you know I am, with Hebrew and Greek words, and, and I get so super excited. Sometimes I probably annoy people with it. But this, for the word, the word that is used in this Hebrews 12 scripture is echoed through all of scripture. It's the most used Greek word. It's called logos. It, it's divine purpose and plan. It's that logos plan that we see in scripture. Think about the amount of writers. I don't even know how many writers that we have in scripture. Someone else might might know here. It's a lot. But not one of them had an idea of a story that was going to go from the beginning to the end with Jesus everywhere. They had no clue what they were doing. They were writing down their testimony and their heartfelt prayers and the issues and struggles that they had. But yet at the end of the story, we have, oh my goodness, this whole thing's about Jesus. That's the logos, God's plan. Writing a book, not even knowing that you had the whole story. That's like craziness. And that word logos shows up so much through scripture. It actually says in John, it says that the logos became a person, right? So now the logos, the, the intent, the purpose of all creation is Jesus. That's what John is saying in John 1. So here it's used again, right? We think when we read this, we're not going to read this that um, for the word of God, your scripture, what you're reading in the Bible, that's part, that's, that's part of what the logos is, but it's sharper than that. It's the spirit of God. It's the transformative power of God. For the logos of God the, for, the, for Jesus, 
is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the divisions of soul and spirit and both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Man, that's a person with a sword. And it's a sharp sword. And that's what Jerry, Mary, uh, Mary and Joseph were going through. They were going through this, this sanctification with what God was getting them on the same page. It's going to cost you everything, isn't it? It's going to cost you your culture. It's going to cost you your ideas, your concepts. It's going to cost you your pride. It's going to cost you everything. You have to get to that spot with God to where we've surrendered it all. They had to give up everything for God to be able to move. There's this uh, lie that kind of goes around the church that Christianity equals external peace. We say, well, Jesus is the Prince of Peace and so that we'll experience much peace. But that's not really what is happening. We're going to require Jesus' peace. We're going to need his peace. We're going to have to ask him for his peace. We don't, we don't get peace on our own. We have, we have some struggles and some trials and some tribulation that we go through that require us to get real with Jesus. And it requires us to rely on him and watch what he does. We have to fully surrender to that. And it's in that place that Jesus is echoing this teaching to his disciples. And he says to them, he says, remember, he says, I'm going to send you out with like sheep among wolves. He puts them in a pretty dangerous spot. When we get down here to Matthew 10, he's talking about the sword again, where we think, at least I think in my own life, like Jesus is my best friend, and he just loves me and cares for me, and everything's going to be great, and I don't have to change. I don't have to do anything. But he doesn't say that. He addresses something here. It says Matthew 10, 34 through 39, starting at verse 34, it says this. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And as Christians who we love, we love everybody. It's like, man, Jesus, what do you mean you came to bring a sword? Well, I didn't see Jesus chopping everybody up when he came back. So what is he talking about? And it's that transformative sword that he went to us. Look at the way that he taught and he reacted with people. Saying things like to Peter, Satan, get behind me. Like, that's a little harsh, right? That's a little abrasive. That's that sword. It's like, no, no. This isn't so much about worrying about hell as it is worrying about hell that's in you, right? The, the way that you think, the way that we, we act like the world, those things. And it continues on in verse 35, and it says this, For I came to set a man against his father. What? And a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his household. And the thoughts and intentions of what Jesus is saying is like, man, when you put me first, when I'm the central location of your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, there's problems. Because your family doesn't want to be second. Your family doesn't want to relinquish control. Your family doesn't want you to 
Be separated from them in the sense of the things that you've always done. There's change that's happening. You're not owned by anybody anymore. You're owned by God. In 37, it says, He who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take this cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And that, that scripture can get very confusing because you could, you could sit here and you could say that, that God doesn't care about family. He doesn't care about your mom. He doesn't care about your dad or your sister or your brother. But what he's saying is like, guys, 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 you can't do love. You can't. You, you, you can't love your wife properly or your son properly unless you love me completely and wholly and you have your eyes fixed on me first. Like, in our marriage, Ashley and I's marriage got to that place to where it was such a wreck and such a mess that God was like, you can't love each other unless you love me first. And so when my wife said to me, she said, you're going to make me choose between God and you. You need to understand that I already chose God. And it was a very short learning curve. And I said, well, what time does church service start? And then we started moving through this place where it was hurtful. That I was like, my wife chose God first. It's like, what was amazing was I thought that God loved me so much. He was empowering me to love my wife in a way that I never could before because I had all these hurts and hangups that I was dealing with. It was so powerful. And he's doing that in our relationships. He's just saying, whatever it is that you have, whatever relationship, your, your relationship with your mom or your dad or your brother or your sister or, or your people at work or whoever you, your, your mentor is, if that is first before me, you're done. I can't do nothing with you. So we have to take those things to Christ and we watch what he does, he, he does with them. You know, um, this sanctification thing where we're taking one thing that I love so much, we do this discovery Bible study every morning and on Sundays and we go through like the I will statement that we had last week and it's, it's like putting this sword in my weekly walk that I know that when I'm going to come to church and I'm going to talk to, to Judy and Charlie and, and Cheryl and Gary and everybody there, that, like I'm going to be, we're going to, like what, what happened this week? What went through this week? And I was telling them, I said, God was showing me, it's like, man, you're really paying a lot of attention to that phone. Like, you're getting off track. Like, you're really getting, and I'm like, okay. And then, dang, what's my phone? Where's my phone? Dang. Oh, it's an email. And I'm like, okay, God, I don't know really what to do. And then this morning, I get up, and it wasn't intentional because I always check for my phone. I come to church, and I don't have my phone. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I got to do a recording. What's it, do you? Do you really? It's like, okay, I guess this morning we don't need to do a recording. Well, I need to get with Gary and have Gary call my wife to bring my phone. Like, Lord, do you? It's like, you know what? If my phone's at the house, I guess it's going to stay at the house. So I got some work to do. Chop, chop, right? Chop, chop. So we're working through this. We're being transformed into the image of Jesus. Not very easy. Sometimes it's not very pleasant, but it is necessary for us to look like him or you might say wow rick you really look like you man is that ugly (laughs) man is that ugly so this morning i just want to give some space for god to just deal with our hearts 
and deal with me again. I, I mean, Lord knows I could use it again. So let's just get sharper. Let's get sharper together. And then we have a special, um, Charlie and, and Cheryl are going to sing a special for us um, after service. So I just thank you, God, so much for your sword. You sent a child fully prepared to dice me up. If I'd have picked you up that day when you, you were born, I would have said, ow, you cut my finger. And I just thank you, Lord, for that. I just ask you, Father, as we take some time in silence, that you deal with us in a very raw and real way. We don't want anything between us and you. And we know that that's what you came to do. You came to get our eyes focused on you so that you could deal with us so that we could love each other. And I just thank you, Lord, for that. I just thank you for this time. Come Holy Spirit.